Bakic. And the goal here is to give ourselves an overview of the message that Habakkuk has for us, that the Lord has for us, through the prophet of Habakkuk. Uh, I've given, I only had eight, so I've handed out as many as I could, and some of you, if you would be so kind as to share with each other, and if outlines aren't a help to you, then give it to your neighbor or circular file it, whatever you need to do, you won't hurt my feelings. This is a a road map of where we're going to go over the next three weeks, Uh, basically an overview of the book of Habakkuk. The theme, the main theme of the book, overwhelmingly, being found in chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Quoted three times in the, in the New Testament, in the Hebrews, in Galatians, and in Romans. Um, so, but for today, in chapter 1, this is the challenge to you and me, as we see Habakkuk take his frustrations to the Lord as we see him uh, basically ask, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing in the nation? Uh, why, aren't you, uh, why aren't you addressing these issues of sin and, and the oppression of the righteous? And so as we look at those things, the challenge for you and me is take your frustrations to God. Now with that, be prepared to align yourself with his answers. Um, we are finite Individuals, And we are plagued by faithlessness. We are constantly battling the struggle between our flesh's desire to rule and the spirit of God, his desire to rule in our hearts. And so as we take our frustrations to the Lord, and some of them can be innocent frustrations, some of them may be rebelliously motivated frustrations, some of them... Uh, may just be a lack of understanding, but as we take our frustrations to God, and that's always the best thing to do with those. Don't take them primarily to your neighbor or your pastor and leave them there, your spouse. Don't bottle them up inside and get bitter and angry. Take them to God. If they're wrong, let him correct them. When we do that, let's be sure that we are ready to align ourselves with his answer. So before we get into chapter one, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for the message that you have for us through Habakkuk. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to gain over the next three weeks a better appreciation of this book and its message of walking by faith and not by sight. We thank you for the foundational truths that are found throughout the Old Testament, this being a prime example of that, Lord. Things that you elaborated upon, built upon, and and, uh, explained further in the New Testament. So we thank you for the cohesiveness of Scripture, how all these things fit together, how Uh, access to a relationship with you has always been through faith in your ability and in your sacrifice and ultimately that is in Jesus Christ. So we thank you for the the message of scripture. We pray that you would help each one of us to apply it to our lives this morning as we consider Habakkuk, a man just like us, plagued with the same frustrations and the same temptations and the same passions. We ask that you would do a work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 4 the problem of injustice. And within that, we see, first of all, God's seeming lack of concern. And I say seeming because God is not unconcerned about anything. But as Habakkuk looked around his nation, and we'll talk more about the background as we get into the book. I don't want to do all that up front. We'll do that as we go. As Habakkuk considered the oppression that his nation was going through, the oppression of the wicked... 
he saw this problem of injustice and it seemed like God just didn't care. Wicked men were becoming more and more prevalent. The righteous were becoming less and less prevalent. Those who were righteous were being oppressed and, and, uh, and, and hurt and robbed and killed and maligned. And so he has this seeming lack of concern. And uh, Habakkuk addresses that in the first two verses. It says, The burden which Habakkuk, the prophet, did see. His name means to embrace. In fact, in modern Hebrew, uh, the, the same uh, word, different derivative of it, means to give somebody a hug. Ani mechabek et haishashili. I am hugging my wife. And so it's that, same, that, that term has survived throughout the years. And Habakkuk's name is a derivation of that, and it means to embrace. And he, as a representative of the righteous nation, of the righteous who are left in the nation of Israel, embraces the righteous people that are left, and he brings them to God. And as their spokesman, almost, he presents to God not only his complaint and frustrations, but theirs as well. So he takes them up in his arms, and he brings them to God. And he says in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. (laughs) You know, Habakkuk's life was an open book, was it not? I mean, can you imagine taking your deepest frustration with the Lord, with life, and putting it for everybody to read it? That's what happened to Habakkuk. He's basically saying, Lord, it looks like you don't care. I've been crying to you, and you just don't seem to answer. You don't seem to care. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, it's kind of easy to make a parallel in our day, isn't it? We have wickedness abounding. Uh, We have wrong agendas everywhere. Justice being perverted. Wrong being called right. Right being called wrong. Courthouses are crooked. Supreme courts are crooked. And governors are crooked. And mayors are crooked. And lawyers are crooked. And churches are crooked. And pastors are crooked. And it's like, Lord, how long? I cry out to you of violence. And you will not save. We see in verses 3 and 4 the presence and practices of wicked men. He says, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked or handicapped. And judgment doth never go forth. Right things never completely win out. For the wicked doth compass or surrounds about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. The wickedness that he describes parallels What we read about in Jeremiah's day, and for sake of time, we'll not uh, go through and review a bunch of that. But remember, Jeremiah wrote during the latter part of the life of Josiah, the life of Jehoiakim, the life of Jehoiakim, the life of Zedekiah, and died sometime after that as a captive in the land of Egypt. And the wickedness that Habakkuk describes seems to parallel the things Jeremiah talks about. Remember how in Jeremiah's day... The Israelites were offering their children to the gods of the Moabites and the gods of the Ammonites. And in the same day, according to Jeremiah chapter 7, were coming into the house of the Lord and worshiping Jehovah in Solomon's temple. And God says, Behold, you slay your children under the cliffs of the rocks by the streams and the smooth stones, and ye come the same day and offer sacrifice in mine house. Shall I accept this of you? And the wickedness is very similar to what Jeremiah describes. Plus the fact that 
God says, I will raise up the Chaldeans and I will bring the Chaldeans, indicating that they had not yet conquered the land, would put this book somewhere around the end time of Josiah, six, maybe 620-ish BC, somewhere in that time frame, where the wickedness is coming to a full end. God's about to cut it off, the nation of Israel, but it hasn't reached that point yet. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by the apparent prosperity of the wicked? I think we can identify with verse 4, the law is slacked. Judgment doth never go forth. In courtrooms, bribes are taken every day, and the one with the most influence and the most money is most likely to win out and win the case. Isn't always the case, I understand that, but in many, many instances in our nation today, it is the same. But along with that, I want to be careful to understand that we are not Israel. And this is not apples to apples. Okay? But we can draw principles from this and, and find encouragement in our day as to how Habakkuk was, was told to handle these things. So the problem of injustice. And now we get into verse 5, where God answers Habakkuk. See, the first couple of chapters, we have Habakkuk and God talking back and forth. And then in the last chapter, Habakkuk gives a song and a praise of faith. And he decides to rest wholly and entirely upon God, his mercy, his justice, his power. So there's this dialogue. And in verse 5, the Lord picks up. And we see the promise of a Chaldean invasion. And God describes, first of all, the rise of the Chaldean Empire. He says, Behold ye among the heathen. Look around at the surrounding nations, Habakkuk. Look around, Israel, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. And with that statement, the Lord upbraids the unbelief that was rampant in Israel at the time of Habakkuk. In fact, Paul, if you remember in Acts chapter 13, verse 41, would quote this exact same verse as a rebuke to unbelieving Israel after proclaiming to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul would draw upon this principle of beware, that you don't have an unbelieving heart. And he would use it from this, this passage we read right here. And so the Lord upbraids Israel's unbelief right off the bat and says, I'm going to tell you something, you're not even going to believe it. Though I'm going to do it in your days. And you think about the unbelief in Jehoiakim of of, no, I'll side with Egypt, and I, I will not be submissive to the king of Babylon, and God's not going to destroy Babylon. You think about Zedekiah and his unbelief. Though even though the Chaldeans were knocking at his door, he continued to butt against the, the, the admonitions of Jeremiah and the, the encouragements to submit himself to the king of Babylon, continued to say, no, they won't come in here. They won't penetrate the city. And of course, what happened? They did. And he was taken away to Babylon and died. The Lord says in verse 6, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are, are not theirs. Now at the time the Lord said this, Chaldea, or Babylon, was not a world power. In fact, they were still under the rule of the Assyrians. It wouldn't be until 620 B.C. that Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, a name which we should all recognize. It was not till 620 BC that he would lead a revolt in the city of Babylon and would begin to push the Assyrians out and eventually establish Babylon as his own center of power, which he would then use as a foothold to spread north and west 
and move up the Euphrates River Valley and conquer the Assyrian Empire. In 612 BC, the famous city that was prophesied in the book of Nahum, anybody remember what that was? Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria at the time. There, basically, uh, though Babylon was also a capital, Assyria was near and dear to their hearts, being the chief god of Asher, of the Assyrians. <clears throat> and so it wasn't until 612 BC that Nabopolassar, his son Nebuchadnezzar, and the Median power to the north would all ally themselves together and conquer Nineveh. In 609 BC, they would continue to push north and west up the Euphrates River Valley to Carchemish, near modern-day Syria, that's where we are told about Pharaoh Necho in the book of Kings coming to head them off. Josiah goes out against Pharaoh Necho, says, no, you're not going to come. He was probably worried about Egypt making itself a world power and helping Assyria, what was left of it. But God told Josiah, don't you go out against Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh Necho says, don't you come out against me. I'm doing what the Lord told me. He goes out, he dies. Pharaoh Necho allies himself with what remains of the Assyrian army. And pushes back the Babylonians only temporarily. Only temporarily. And then we find out in Jeremiah chapter 46 verses 1 through 10. Turn there with me if you would please. Jeremiah prophesies that even though Pharaoh Necho and what was left of the Assyrians had been successful in pushing back the Babylonians. It was only a matter of time before God would utterly destroy Pharaoh his army, and what remained of the Assyrian Empire. And that is what is prophesied in Jeremiah 46, verses 1 through 10. Now, we'll not read the whole thing due to time, but we will read a few key verses. Jeremiah 46, 1. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Gentiles, against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, 605 B.C., four years after his first battle with Babylon in 609. King, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And the Lord tells the Egyptian army, uh, almost with a hint of irony, Order ye the buckler and the shield, draw near to battle, harness the horses, and get up, ye horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets. Furbish the spears. Put on the brigandines. Wherefore have I seen them dismayed and turned away back? And their mighty ones are beaten down and are fled apace. And look not back, for fear was round about, saith the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 9. Come up, ye horses, and rage, ye chariots. God's telling the Egyptian army, come on. Come on, I have something for you. Rage, ye chariots, let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians, the Libyans that handle the shield, the, the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. Ethia, Lydia, Libya, all being uh, parts of Egypt at that time. Ethia being Cush, the ancient Cush of the Bible, modern day Ethiopia. God says, come on, get your chariots together, get your spears, get your shields, put on your brigandines, put on the armor. I have a surprise for you. Look at verse 10. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts. A day of vengeance, that ye may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiate and made drunk with their blood. The blood of the Egyptians, the blood of what remained of the Assyrian army. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. 
And as history testifies very clearly, on 605 B.C., that fateful day near the key city of Carchemish along the Euphrates River, Nebuchadnezzar decidedly destroyed and routed the Egyptian army along with what remained of the Assyrians, and Assyria was officially done. But all this was yet future when God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to raise up these people. And it probably seemed almost ludicrous to Habakkuk because here's this, this small group of people under the control of the Assyrian army and the Assyrian empire, and God says, nope, I'm going to raise them up. God can do anything he wants to do. Take the smallest power and turn it into a world power overnight to accomplish his will because he's that powerful. These are things you and I don't understand. We don't have the ability to grasp all this. And we have to remember this. When we're taking our frustrations to God, he is sovereign. And so he describes next the dread of the Chaldeans. Look at verse 8. Or verse 7. They're, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. They're, they're conceited. They are self-sufficient in their own eyes. They're very arrogant and very prideful. As Nebuchadnezzar would say in Daniel chapter 4, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for myself, for the glory of my majesty, for the strength of my power? And God would say, No, unto thee it is spoken, O king. You're going to become a beast for seven years. Arrogant, wicked people. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. And consistently in Old Testament prophecy, Babylon is portrayed as the eagle that destroys and devours as well as the lion. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind. And they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings. And the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold. For they shall heap dust and take it. So in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the Assyrian army. He destroys the Egyptians. He chases them as far as the Egyptian border. And not long after that, he receives a message, Nabopolassar, your father has died. So, as was customary in the day, to prevent some rival from taking the throne, he drops everything. He leaves the army in the hands of a capable individual. He hightails it back to Babylon. He assures the throne. He claims it for himself, establishes himself there, and then proceeds to advance again to finish what he started. And Ezekiel, who was at the time, uh, would soon be a, a captive, would later prophesy of these things. So in 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes down into Judah, and one city after another, he conquers it. And then two important individuals are taken captive in 605 BC. Well, one is Daniel, who would then prophesy of all the things that we read about in Daniel, and he would remain in Babylon for the remainder of his days as an encouragement to God's people, and as one who would pen some of the greatest prophecies that we have. In 605, Jehoiakim who had been established previously by the king of Egypt, would remain on the throne, but he would remain under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar would go back into Babylon. In 597 BC, Jehoiakim, who had continuously been trying to rebel against the king of Babylon, would eventually be destroyed. We're not told exactly how. God said that you shall be drawn forth from the gates of Jerusalem. You'll be buried with the burial of an ass. 
You'll not be put into a grave. So we know he wasn't taken to Babylon. Some think he was killed by raiders who are working for the king of Babylon. Maybe raiders of Moab and, and from Ammon. Remember the Bible tells us in the book of Kings that because of Jehoiakim's sin, God sent against him bands of the Moabites and bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Ammonites right? and bands of the Amalekites and, and all of the surrounding people because Jehoiakim's sin. And so it's quite possible that he died in one of those raids. Regardless, his son, Jehoiakim, would then be put on the throne for a scant three months. But like father, like son, he would prove to be rebellious and wicked. And, jo and Nebuchadnezzar would have him deposed. We're not told exactly how. But he and Ezekiel in 597 BC are then brought to Babylon as captives. And Ezekiel would then begin his ministry in Babylon prophesying of the very near destruction of Jerusalem. And in chapter 4 of Ezekiel, God told Ezekiel, you get yourself a tile. And on this little tile, well, we don't know, it was a ceramic tile, maybe it was stone, we don't know. It says, I want you to portray the city of Jerusalem. And I want you to portray a bank. I want you to, to take dirt. I want you to push it up against the walls as though those who are trying to conquer it are, are casting a bank against it. I want you to build little battering rams. And I want you to, to, to create a city under siege, a model of a city under siege. And God was prophesying what would happen when the Chaldean army came to Jerusalem in six or 588 B.C. to besiege it and eventually destroy it in 586 B.C. But that's what he means here in verse 10 when he says, They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust. The idea is they're going to build a bank up against the city to make it easier. Maybe build themselves natural ramps so that they can scale the walls and, and reach the city easier with battering rams and catapults and engines of war. They shall heap dust and take it. So God describes the, describes the dread of the Chaldeans. And eventually in 586, Jerusalem would be destroyed. Jeremiah would be freed and would eventually go into captivity in Egypt. But then in verse 11, and this should be very encouraging to you and me, God describes the offense of the Chaldeans. I'm going to put that last slide up there because I didn't do that. God describes the offense of the Chaldeans. You see, God doesn't turn a blind eye to anything. You know, God could choose to deal with our nation with a nation more wicked than us. Right? We are wicked, no doubt about it. We are not the Christian nation we once were. We are vile. We still have remainders of Christian influence that are keeping some things in check, for which I'm grateful. But we are no longer a strong Christian nation. We are very wicked. God could easily use a nation more wicked than us to punish us. But that doesn't mean that God turns a blind eye to the sin of the nation that he used to punish us. Same thing with Israel. Because God says in verse 11, speaking of Babylon, then shall his mind, and the word is the Hebrew word ruach, which means to a breath or a spirit or a wind. And, trans, and, and numerous times throughout the Old Testament, it is translated breath, the breath of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord. Uh, a wind, a great wind came along. Same word. And so the, somewhere along the way, God says, the spirit of the king of Babylon is going to change. And it says, and, shall offend, and, shall, and he shall pass over. And the idea is, he's going to go beyond something. The Hebrew word pass over behind this is the idea of, of overtaking someone or passing someone on the road or, or reaching a certain point and going beyond that point. 
God says, some point in time, the, 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 the king of Babylon is going to pass over and offend. And here's the offense. Imputing this, his power, unto his God, when it was me who helped him. And we are given perfect examples of this in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar walks on the walls. We already mentioned this one. says, is this not great Babylon that I built for my glory, for the might of my strength, for the glory of my majesty? And God makes him a beast for seven years. Chapter 5, we reach the story of Belshazzar, the last of the co-regent Babylonian kings, co-regent under his father, Nabonidus. And we find Belshazzar with the enemy of the Persian army outside of his gates. He's inside Babylon, totally confident they cannot penetrate his city. Totally confident that his food supply would last at least 20 years. Totally confident that, hey, I have a a portion of the Euphrates River that runs through my city. I have an endless water supply. And in his arrogance and in his pride, he gathers together the gods of silver and the gods of gold and the gods of brass and the gods of iron, the gods made of wood and the gods made of stone. What does he do with the vessels of Jehovah? He digs them out of mothballs, so to speak, and he brings them into his drunken orgy. And he says, we're going to use these as our drinking vessels. And the idea behind that was my God is better than your God. And he steps on the face of the creator of the earth, the one who created him. Was that his point where he passed over and offended? Very possibly. But the point being, God knows the mind and the heart. And God knows how far to let people go in punishment. And God knows when to draw that line. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse 27, we read Daniel interpreting the handwriting, right? That came from God. During this drunken orgy, as Belshazzar is sitting there having a good old time, he looks out of the corner of his eye and hears the form of a man's hand quietly writing on the wall over against the candlestick. And then disappears. And he's totally terrified. Calls all of his wise men of Babylon, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the necromancers, the fortune tellers. They can't help him at all. There's a shock. And finally he calls in, Babylon, or calls in Daniel. And Daniel says with contempt... And zero respect for Belshazzar, unlike he had some respect for Nebuchadnezzar. He says, thy gifts be to thyself and thy rewards for another. I'll show you the interpretation. It says, mene, mene, mina, mina, a form of a measurement. Tekel, or shekel, the Aramaic word for the weight. You far seen, you being a conjunction, and far seen being the idea of division. And he says, here's the interpretation. Let me, let me boil it down for you. Judge, judged, weighed, divided. That's the idea between mene, mene, tekel, you far seen. Judge, judged, weighed, divided. And he says, going to judge? You've been putting the balances and found wanting. Here's a certain measurement of Amina. Yeah, you don't measure up to it. You've been putting the, bel- the, the balances of the shekel. And uh, shekel's over here and you're up here. And as a result of all that, Perez, which is akin to the Aramaic word for Persia. It was a play on words when Daniel said that. So he says, Paras, or Peres is the Hebrew or Aramaic word for Persia. He says, I'm going to divide you. And I'm going to use the, the Medes and the Persians to do that. And in that very night, right, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, who was actually co-regent under his father, Nabonidus was killed in battle later. Uh, he says, it says that he was taken and um, he was killed in that same night. And Darius the Mede, being threescore years old took the throne under Cyrus the king of Persia by the way so God knows that point and when we're bringing our frustrations to the Lord 
we can understand and be confident in the fact that God will not let anyone go beyond that predetermined level of grace. And when they cross over and offend, and only the divine God knows that timeline, God says, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. Then we see the prophet's bewilderment in verses 12 through 17, and we'll end here. First of all, he presents the conflict of punishment and preservation. He says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. Lord, I know you have already told Israel that they will be uh, established forever. You've made promises to David that his reign, his throne would be established forever. 2 Samuel 7. You've already promised him that his kingdom would be a a kingdom with no end. So I know we're not going to die. I know we're not going to be annihilated. He's confused. O Lord, thou hast ordained them, or the heathen nations, for judgment. And almighty God, it's actually one word which means rock. O rock, almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. When you and I don't understand, we're having moments of frustration. Just remember, God is that rock that we need to hold on to. The one that will not fail. Thou art of pure eyes, he says. Than to behold evil. Now we have the conflict of God's holiness and wicked men's progress. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Yeah, we have a lot of problems, Lord. Israel's wicked, but Babylon is the world's center of idolatry. The world's center of all wickedness and vices. Things we can't even talk about in a public setting. And you're going to use these people, Lord, to punish a nation that, yeah, we've got problems, but we're more righteous than them. At least that's what Habakkuk thought. But you see, the problem is sin, sin. And to whom much is given, much is required, Jesus said. And to whom has much light is given, more light is expected. And Israel had a lot of light, did they not? What was their primary job? What was Israel's primary job? If you could just sum it up. What was their main job? You know, as they, as they waited for Messiah to come and do his work on the cross, what were they supposed to be doing to the surrounding nations through their example? You can use a modern term. It's okay. Evangelize, right? Now, see, God's heart has never, has never changed. It's always been the same. Israel's evangelization was different than what we're supposed to do today, but it was the same idea. I want you to be pure, different, dedicated, changed from the inside out, and I want you to draw the other nations to you through that. Now we're supposed to go out to them with the gospel. Different dispensation, same concept. Go reach the lost. And they were not doing that at all. In fact, God said, because of you, you have given great occasion to the enemy to blaspheme right? Instead of evangelizing, they were actually encouraging the nations to have a reason to not believe in God. And so, yes, this is Habakkuk's perspective. But understand that there's another perspective that is beyond you and me. And that is God's perspective. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And he understands everything. And we understand practically nothing most of the time. In verse 14, Habakkuk now talks about how um, Babylon is is scarfing up the nations and harvesting the nations like a fisherman would harvest fish. 
He says, and makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They, or the Babylonian nation, take up all of them, the surrounding nations, with the angle or the fish hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag. They worship their own strength. They worship their military prowess. They worship their gods. They worship their beautiful Babylon. They worship everything but you, Lord. Because they have one evil success after another. What's going on? Because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? We end the, we end the, and I hate to end a chapter or a study this way, but we're coming back next week, Lord willing. We end on a note of man's understanding of the whole situation. And remember, as we consider the challenge today, you and I have a very small amount of the story. Because if we knew everything, we understood everything, faith would not be necessary. But the problem is, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The problem is, if I had all the facts and I understood everything, I wouldn't need God. And then my soul, according to Habakkuk 2.4, would be lifted up in me. I would become arrogant. It would not be upright in me. And now I would not be living by my faith and could not be justified before a holy God by my faith in what he can do to save me. So we end the note, we end the, the lesson on a note of man's perspective. But understand that this is by no means the end of the story. And Lord willing, next week we'll get into chapter 2 where the theme of the book becomes very apparent and where you and I will be encouraged to walk by faith and not by sight. So let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the honesty of Habakkuk, things he said that we can truly identify with. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember to take our frustrations to you but not just that, to also be ready to align ourselves with your answer. Because it may not be what we want. Though it will always be what is best for not only us, but for everyone. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.